This episode of American Farrier's Journal podcast is brought to you by SmartPak. Hi, this is Jessica, SmartPak's National Director of Equine Health Education. SmartPak knows that the most important part of hoof health is consistent, quality maintenance from you, the hoof care professional. But as you know, some horses need extra nutritional support to maintain hoof horn quality and growth rate. At SmartPak, we offer a variety of hoof supplements for all needs and all budgets, and we'd be happy to help your clients find the perfect supplement for their horse. They can call our highly trained team at 1-800-461-8898 or visit us anytime at smartpack.com. Welcome to the American Farriers Journal podcast. I'm Jeremy McCubbin. Mark Caldwell started off in Ferry because he thought it was a better working schedule, not because he was fascinated by the trade or the horses. But although he started out this way, a switch flipped and he became completely consumed by the job. This led to a career in pursuing the science of farriery, ultimately earning him a PhD. In this podcast, Dr. Caldwell shares his history in the trade and also his call for farriers to up their game and elevate the trade. Well, it's a really funny story, Jeremy, to be honest with you, and it's almost embarrassing. I was in the British Army. It was in the summer of 1976, which was also the Queen's Silver Jubilee year. And I was stuck on what they called the rear party, which was doing Queen's lifeguard day on, day off, day on, day off. And during your day off, you were cleaning and polishing kit and mocking out horses. And, and you, you worked every weekend mocking out horses and needed night guards. And, and then there were these boys that worked in the forge. And they worked from Monday to Friday, 8.30 to 3.30. They had Wednesday afternoon, which was supposedly sports afternoon, but there wasn't a lot of sports happening. And they never did Queen's lifeguard. They did very few ceremonial duties, and they only ever worked one weekend in eight. And there was a vacancy, and I stuck my hand up. And so I got picked, and I went to the course at Melton. I kind of did all right at it, but I wasn't madly interested in it. It was just a way of getting out of doing ceremonial duty. And um, it kind of went from there, really. When um, I came to finish my time, they wanted me to sign on again so I could do my diploma exam. And um, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to do another three years of that uh, cleaning and polishing kit stuff. So I said, no, thank you. And I went off and uh, I went surfing to California for three years. Mm. With the usual stuff, looked at uh, very attractive looking babes in not very scantily dressed swimsuits <laughs> and tried to learn to surf but wasn't very good at that and eventually I came home and uh, I was absolutely skint when I came home and all I had to my name was this box of tools that I had when I was in the army and so I was probably in 1980 early 1981 the world's first barefoot trimmer <laughs> so I started a little bit of a business just doing barefoot trims and then eventually got enough money together to get a fire and an anvil and started shoeing and registration came in in this country at that point in time so at that point I thought well I better be legal so I took my diploma exam in the October of 1981 now that I still wasn't madly interested in shoeing horses although even now I think that I was reasonably competent but in 1984, I went to a shoeing competition um, with some friends of mine, just for a day out. And I had a, a bit of a go in the 
was the restricted class, or you would call the intermediate class. I didn't do particularly well on the day, and to this day in my life, I still don't know what it was, but something clicked with me. And I kind of realized that if I applied myself, I could actually be quite good at it. And from there on out, I went on this journey of discovery. So yeah. that's how I got into it. Were you even interested in horses when you joined the army? No, none whatsoever. In fact, I'd actually joined the tank side of the household cavalry. And at the point where I finished my basic training, um, my the squadron that I'd been attached to was on active service. And I was 17 and a half, and you had to be 18 to do uh, active service. So I was posted to London pending them coming back from Northern Ireland. Mm -hmm. And because I was over six foot two, I got stuck in London. What was it about six foot two in London? Well, at the time, back in the 70s, to be in the household cavalry, you had to be white, six foot two, and fit into a certain picture style. You know, everybody was the same uniform size and that kind of uniformity of uh, British tradition. It's strange. It's always kind of these these watershed moments or what you said, things clicked. What do you think it was? Was it specific to that competition or, or what was that trigger? No, I think it was the I think it was the realization that I was probably more competent than I believed I was. And that I wasn't a million miles away from being a reasonable horseshoer. And seeing other competitors and the way that they went about it and the interest that they had in it and the, the kind of devotion that they put into it really kind of inspired me a little bit. At that time, there were people not about what Gothic was competing, Alan Calvert, the Malanders, and David Smith and one or two others. And that kind of, this current kind of crop of Billy Carruthers and Grant Moon, they'd all started competing. And, and I wasn't a million miles away from there. Mm -hmm. And I think that was kind of what inspired me. You know, they, they, they were good, but I was for somebody that really didn't care about horseshoe and I wasn't that far away, you know? <laughs> I think that was it, really. You know, you, you mentioned those names were some of the big names of the industry. Who were some of your mentors at that time? Well, I've got to say that at that point, I um, became really excessively focused on trying to improve myself and one of the um, the very first people that actually gave me time was um, Spud Allison's father, Tom Allison, and um, he took me to one side one week just before the Royal Show and um, taught me some really basic stuff that I'd never grasped and gave me that time free. And it's one of the things that I constantly remember because he was a really, really busy man, a top class man, but he took time out of his schedule to help me because he knew I needed help. And that, that's always stuck with me and it's remained one of my um, primary things in life. I always remember that somebody else told me, which is why I try to give freely of what I know. Um, and then Alan Calvert, Alan Claxton, some of your listeners will remember remember them. Uh, Anne Claxton in particular was uh, a big mentor of mine. Uh, we worked together for 12, 15 years, and um, she was a hell of a horseshoe. 
Alan Calvert is probably the only guy I know that could chase Ducky um, consistently. I was fortunate enough to work with both of them for that 12 years of time. And then um, other people that helped me along the way, Mackhead, mm -hmm. Alan Bailey, um, Ron Weir, Chris Collis. Uh, and then in 1986-87, um, which is a kind of separate story, I ended up working at Liverpool University with a bloke called Robert Eustace. He wanted to work on laminitics. And because I'd met Bernie Chapman two or three years earlier, I ended up going and spending six months with the Chapmans. And Bernie Chapman was a huge inspiration to me. Um, I learned so much about, not, not showing laminitics, but the realities of anatomy, physiology, and biomechanics. They weren't, the startling thing to me at the time was None of those things were where I'd learned them in a line diagram to pass my exams. And that made me think from that point out that there were other factors that I didn't understand that were affecting the outcome of what I did. Was Bernie really the inspiration for that recognition for you? Oh, absolutely. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. Uh, he was uh, my friend, my mentor. The, the things that I learned from that experience, not necessarily, it's hard for me to say this, you know, Bernie Chapman was not a great horseshoe, but he, he had a really good understanding of the physiology and the mechanics of what was going on in the foot. And the realization that this foot did not conform to the line diagrams that I'd learned in home for my anatomy in horseshoe in school, posed serious questions about the prescriptive nature of what it was that I'd learned. So through the years, you know, from 1984 to 1987, I'd passed my associate exam and my fellowship exam, but they were all based on this anecdotal evidence and um, historical writings from 1897. But none of this stuff worked. It, <laughs> It helped, but it didn't work. There was no kind of permanent solution. And the time that I spent with Chapman opened up that question. Why? You know, uh, why when you know that XYZ shoe is good for this, is it not giving you a permanent solution? It was because we didn't understand or have the knowledge and understanding of basic physiology and biomechanics and how that affected the foot, the limb, the stance, and the reaction to what we now know as forces and ground forces and pressure and, uh, and all those kind of things that have come from the update of modern science, if that makes any sense. No, it certainly does. That's that's quite a jump from from being someone yes. who got into horseshoeing because of favorable hours in the Army to, you know, a decade later with the fellowship and the kind of questions you're asking and seems to where it's driven you today into your work. Absolutely, yeah, and, and, it, and it was the driver. Um, in, the, in the late 90s, I got kind of embroiled in business things with Arn and Alan, and they kind of went to one side. But when I went back to, to teaching at Maesco in uh, 2000, one of the conditions that I put on that was that they allowed me time to follow up some research that I'd started in the late 80s, early 90s. And that's where the PhD came from, because it was still the same questions the search for knowledge and understanding of how the thing is working. Because 
And what I believe now is that you can't come up with an effective treatment protocol for any situation without first understanding how it got into the situation that it is now. What actually caused it? And I kind of like it to be um, going to the doctors. Doctor, doctor, I've got a headache. So the doctor gives you some some painkillers, and three, four weeks later, you go back to the doctors. It's a little bit better, but I've still got a headache. So he gives you an increased dose of painkillers, and this goes on for a few months, and then eventually he says, "Well, maybe we better refer you and get you a scan or something." And then you get the results of the scan, and he says, "I know why you've got a headache. You've got a brain tumor. Sorry, you're dead." <laughs> and if they dealt with it, they'd understood the causes of the pain in the first place. You might have had a chance, and that's been kind of my question. Hmm. If we understand, if we really understand the cause, might we actually prevent some of these common foot pathologies? Is where where do you feel the industry is at right now in terms of bridging that understanding? That's a really tough question, Jeremy. And I almost wish you hadn't asked them. It, I think sadly that the industry is steeped in empirical knowledge and understanding and that most of our thought process is still back in the days of Russell, um, Dora and Wigley, Longwitz. Whilst those are really informative texts, we kind of haven't moved forward and kept pace with science's understanding of what's going on. And so our skills, uh, our skills and understanding are focused on practical elements such as shoe making and shoe building, but not focused on knowledge and understanding of the biomechanical implications of the, the things that actually affect it, like confirmation environment, et cetera, et cetera, that we don't have a control over, but yet we can manipulate to our advantage, if that makes any sense. Um, there are some, for example, there are some confirmation types that lead to certain foot morphologies that we have no control over. They will always happen. But understanding that allows you to um, place shoes in a more judicious position to counteract the effects of that contraindicated confirmation so we can manage the situation better. And that's, I think, where we fall down as an industry. Um, but having said that, I still firmly believe in being able to maintain those basics, um, forging skills and practical skills that you need to be an effective and good horseshoe. We so, just need a greater level of understanding. Yeah, so so maintaining those skills as you said, but but wanting to see the industry evolve. So so yes. what's what's missing in, in the twenty first century. Okay. So you know, uh, today our horses are doing different things, our owners are different, they're working on different surfaces, there's uh, different sets of demands from them. Um we make demands of them way beyond their normal athletic capability particularly with sports horses um, in, in artificial environments and we're not embracing the understanding of those changes 
that actually affects everything that we do. Well, I was I was going to save this for later, but I'm going to play a clip now for you. And this is a clip that was at the summit. It was your closing to your presentation back in 2015. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you really punctuated it. What I'll say about this is every year we have somebody do a closing lecture to want to emphasize some points. And uh, I feel like we got to that year because of what you said. So give it a listen and let's talk about this. And most importantly, we have demonstrated to you over the week that as a profession, we do one hell of a job keeping these things going. When you look at what they can do to themselves, as evidenced by scientists like Dr. Bowker, it's a friggin' miracle we ever get them to a show. Congratulations, guys. Well done. And very lastly, Yesterday, I was inducted into the Hall of Fame. That was... That was probably, apart from the birth of my daughter, which 13 years later I now regret, <laughs> the proudest moment of my life. But it's be the reason that I'm so proud of that is because it's of the contribution of you guys to the continued professional development that we've been searching through meetings like this over the last 12 years that we've been able to do this. We have to keep it up, we have to pick up our game, okay, and we have to contribute to the science of our profession. My very last word is, Equine podiatry used to be a science called Farrery. Let's make it that way. Thank you very much. So yeah. listening back to that a couple years later, what inspired you to say that? You know, like I said, well, that was... Because I believe it. Because I believe it. I believe it. I believe it's in our hands. Our clients, Jeremy believe that we are the experts in the room. And when it comes to feet, they believe it. Until all of a sudden there's some crisis and we need some diagnostic imagery or this, that and the other and the vets become involved. But for but, but normal circumstances, our clients believe that we are the experts in the room and that we're going to prevent and prevent the catastrophes that go on and maintain a certain amount of stability. It's like taking your car to a decent mechanic. You take it and you pay the money because what you don't want to do is replace the engine or the big ends or the gearbox or whatever. And I believe fervently that Ferrari is both art and science. The science behind it is there, although it's been done by veterinary universities, but the art and the craft is the skill of applying that science. And I also, I also believe that because we don't control that and because we don't effectively work on our level of knowledge and understanding, that it's allowed the veterinary profession to intercede 
in some of the things that we would ordinarily be required to deal with because they can't have they can't get the level of communication with us to get what they need to achieve mechanically to treat a, a particular ailment. And that's where this podiatry thing has come into it. Most vets understand what they want to achieve mechanically, but they have no comprehension of the unintended consequences of that action or the difficulties of applying it under a certain set of circumstances. And that we as farriers should be kind of like um, highly educated vet techs giving them information back that says, well, that's okay, we'll achieve this, but this may happen and this may happen, so we need to mitigate them circumstances. That's our role in that situation, as well as our role is to prevent these pathologies occurring as much as possible. And it's only through education, knowledge and understanding, which is power in itself, will we regain the respect for our industry and our craft and, our, uh, and the science of our craft in the future. And I really fervently believe that. It's the, it's the thing that drives me. You travel extensively. Do you see this as a worldwide problem, the, the sort of uh, clashing between farriers and vets? It is a worldwide problem. And it's a worldwide problem because the standard of farriery, no matter where you go, Jeremy, is generally, well, the standard of understanding of farriery, no matter where you go, is generally quite poor. The practical aspects of shoe building are, are good in certain pockets. The practical aspects of maintaining relatively good quality feet are good in certain pockets. But once the situation gets out of control, the understanding of how it got out of control and how you're going to reimpose control over it and manage that situation is really poor. Um, and that's everywhere I go. Okay. Um, people think that, like here in the UK, you know, we have the gold standard, mm -hmm. but it's as bad here as it is anywhere else. So, okay. There's a lot more here that can maintain a decent um, set of circumstances, but not control uh, something that's out of sync. What you've talked about of where you would like to see the profession go, it, it's going to take some time. It's not an overnight solution. But so we're operating under those circumstances still. And, you know, in some circumstances, you may have a very skilled, knowledgeable farrier in trying to communicate that cause and effect. You know, in the interim, how do we better manage this this relationship for the betterment of the horse? Well, I think I think that one of the most important and fundamental aspects of it is that barriers actually have a responsibility to learn to communicate with other paraprofessionals, and that means being able to communicate in a common language. It's not difficult for barriers to learn common veterinary nomenclature and planes of reference, for example. So you can have a reasonable professional discussion about a case in the same language with a veterinary surgeon. One of the problems is that 
the language that we use to describe certain things is very different. And it's a bit like the, the American and English special relationship. You know, two populations united by a common language that one of us doesn't understand. <laughs> well, that's the Farrery Beckroom relationship. And we need to address it. But it's the Farrier's responsibility to address it, is that everybody else uses common nomenclature. Mm-hmm. Um, in your own country, um, and I've toured it quite extensively over the last two years, it's one of the amazing features that sticks out that nobody has, or very few people have, a basic understanding of common veterinary nomenclature and anatomy and planes of reference. Okay. So, so somebody who's listening, you know, they they may not realize where they could improve. Maybe for a common nomenclature 101, where would you like farriers to start in, in terms of anatomy? Well, they, they, just, they, they need to learn basic anatomy. They need to learn planes of reference and basic anatomy of the lower limb and common muscular groups. They don't need to remember all the Latin words but they do need to be able to describe its location and the, the things that it, and the other structures that it's associated with. Um, I hear a lot, Jeremy, you know, in the States, the argument about whether licensing would benefit or not. And I don't believe that licensing is the answer for America. It's too vast, there's too broad a range of equine activities, and the country's too big to accommodate it. But I do believe, and I'm in danger here of sticking my foot in it, but I do believe that there ought to be some kind of oversight over horse-shearing schools because they're the people that are teaching it, they're the people that are encouraging people that they can teach them to go out and earn a career, but yet these people are not learning the common the common stuff to be able to communicate with other professionals and so therefore can begin to approach solving a problem because they're talking in a different language and other professionals are also busy so they haven't got the time to sit there and explain and they just go i'll get somebody who does understand Mm -hmm. do you think some kind of oversight let's take the states for our horseshoeing schools is possible given the size, sort of the same issue maybe with licensing? That, that yeah, I do, I do actually, well enough, because I, I think that um, one of the things that it could do, like most of these schools, they have a, a certain period of time, um, their, their course is a certain amount of weeks, and then at the end of it, there's a, a bit of a test and the school gives a certificate. So for me, one of the easy ways to ensure that each of those schools is reaching a given standard for that period of time is to have a certain set of written standards that you would expect for a six-week course, an eight-week course, a 16-week course, and for those to be examined by external professional bodies like the associations that you have there to that set of written standards. So at least that says to a student, somebody else is looking at that to make sure that the school is teaching me something that is of value to me in my future career, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. And I think that that would go a long way 
to ensuring that there's a the proper mix of teaching the practical application and the necessary knowledge and understanding. You know, you're never going to teach um, somebody to be an effective horseshoe in 8, 12 or 16 weeks, but you can give them a good background that they can build on. And that doesn't seem to be the case. What Have you theorized what that oversight would look like or how it would influence the schools? It, it shouldn't influence the schools at all. The schools should be able to write a set of standards that meet their course curricula. In other words, at the end of the course, we expect you to be able to achieve X, Y, Z to this standard or no this, this and this. And I'll use, for example, the AFA, but I don't necessarily mean the AFA. Using their examiners that have already been accredited, they go in and they oversee the test to those written standards. Not their own written standards, not certification, not journeyman certification, but the standards that are set to the curriculum of the school that it's teaching. At least then there's an outside and external check so that the student who's paying hard-earned money at least knows he's getting a level of teaching that's of value to that money, but as well as the foundation of a knowledge base that they can build on with experience and, and that they can talk to other professionals involved in the equine industry so they can come to effective solutions to some of the problems that they encounter. Because without understanding the nature of a problem, you can't develop a solution. It's like anything in life, you know, without understanding how you got into $50,000 worth of credit card debt, you can't come up with a solution to solve it. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing. And I think that that's the bit that's missing out of Russia. We're not paying enough attention to the necessary knowledge and understanding. So you've had, you know, I think you are one of the leading educators right now, but you are also, in the sense, your previous position in a more formal education of farriers. What have you seen? What are the traits that you believe make a successful farrier? Without doubt, practical, practical skills, hand-eye coordination, and and the practical skill base, um, but also a willingness to understand. Not necessarily to go to the Einstein theory of relativity, but just a willingness to understand the basic concepts of how something works, how it's pieced together, what it interrelates with, um, in a kind of mechanical sense. But have the practical, have the practical um, the necessary practical skills to interpret that into into something. The ability to see shape and form and the, the ability to be able to replicate that, whether that be with trimming tools or in making, fitting or adapting shoes or modern materials to, to that effect. Have you seen education of farriers change that much over your time in the industry? I've seen moves towards it. And the painful side of it is that you'll know yourselves that 
there are not often very many people in our industry that can that have the practical skill base to grasp attention from an audience as well as the theoretical knowledge and understanding to grasp attention from the same audience um, there have been attempts to try and link those things together but one of the things is that, the, that learning the practical aspects of it is often actually easier than learning the understanding of it and the reason that that is is that as you practice shoot building for example you can see the results on the floor and so you've got something to compare to constantly whereas learning um, anatomy physiology and biomechanics you don't often see the results instantly they're long term and they manifest themselves in long-term oversight is that need to be able to um, embrace the theoretical aspects of it but be strong enough willed to constantly analyze where that's going and not slip into your comfort zone of where my shoe building is improving does that make sense to you yes uh, I recently, well, I'll give you a good example. I recently went uh, on a clinic to Brazil on this last tour. And to be honest with you, the practical skill base that I saw was of a really high standard in terms of shoe building, um, shoe making, and basic concepts. And they've grasped that. Those people there have grasped that from studying videos on the internet and from posts on Facebook and working hard at trying to improve those skills and it has without doubt improved their basic power but once a hoof is out of control for reasons that they don't understand they cannot bring it back into control of managing because they're frightened of the change that they don't understand it and frightened of making the changes that they need to to bring it into management and therefore control and that's what you see to varying degrees of practical skill around the globe and across the states you see some people that are really good with a hammer but not very good under the horse where it's out of control and the people that end up with good hammer skills end up getting better horses and those horses have got more problems and so on and so on and so forth it goes i just i just think i guess i guess really what i'm trying to say is that we need more education, more knowledge and understanding of anatomy, physiology, biomechanics, without like getting complexed into cellular level, because as barriers we don't need cellular level. And then education on how to manipulate the set of practical skills that we have to achieve the mechanical efficiency that we're trying to get with a horse because it's the mechanical efficiency that's going to keep it sound. I suppose in a way, the industry might be at a bit of a place like you were when you met Bernie Chapman and were in need yeah. of that that spark. Yeah. yeah. I think in a way, is it your intention? Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about your work with the Shoeing Lab because it sounds like, I, mean, <laughs> I think if anybody follows you on Facebook, I don't know if anyone from the UK has logged as many miles in the United States 
in this amount of time, maybe the, the Rolling Stones on the Start Me Up tour. But, <laughs> but you are holding so many clinics. You know, Is that, that your intention to, to help be that spark? Absolutely. My intention is to roll out as much understanding of what I've learned over this journey as I possibly can. Share it and bring people back to the basic concepts of what we're trying to achieve and give them the information that allows them to understand why they are essential to maintaining both foot health and horse health and be able to explain it in such a way that they understand it. Almost, if you like, to translate veterinary scientific papers into horseshoeing language because the information is out there. It just needs translating and then applying. And that is entirely my intention. Can you talk a little bit about the formation of the shoeing lab and where you're headed with it? Yeah, well, the shoeing lab is is just a, a little small kind of supply company that that's based its ethos on um, trying to um, supply product that is helpful and useful in the, under certain circumstances and that we have found useful under certain circumstances and to provide the educational background behind those products, um, as well as provide the educational support to make that stuff work and improve the knowledge and understanding of our clients. Because at the end of the day, what we believe is that if we can educate our clients into a certain level of understanding, then regardless of where they source their equipment from, what they will end up doing is making educated choices about what they end up applying to the horse's feet. So that's the ethos of the shoeing lab. Educated customers make educated choices. And uh, what's up next for you on your tours? Are you going to continue sporadically here in the U.S. and keep hitting global spots like you said earlier, Brazil? I've come home now for, for, for a few months and um, I don't plan on being back in the U.S. till the new year for the convention and um, the Who Care Summit. Um, I've got a couple of things planned for later on in the, in the U.S. next year again with workmen who want to um, roll out this program we've been doing and try to make that as a modular build-up so you can do one course that's limited to a certain topic and then add on to it with three or four other courses as you go through so we can build up the knowledge rather than be trying to give it all in one one hit and um, we're from the shoeing lab point of view we're developing products that have come from the research to try and help with certain of the modern phenomena in sports horses in particular stuff that interrelates with how horses interact in surfaces um, and but just generally continuing on this educational drive to try and improve not only the the standard of farrowing but uh, and the knowledge of farriers but also i kind of believe that if we can do that it improves the farriers working environment their working background and the respect that they get from their clients and other professionals and that they can monetize. So we're working to help barriers improve their lot and their social mobility, whilst at the same time achieving a better standard of priority. That's what we're trying to do. 
and ultimately the benefactor is the horse, but you'd mentioned the client. And so by elevating the, the industry, do you, do you think clients will recognize that or is it, it'll just be a, you know, something they won't recognize, but they will recognize like the, be the better care for their horses by the, the industry evolving? Well, I think that there's two things there, Jeremy. I think that the client will better recognize it because they'll have enhanced performance. But I also think that it's up to us, the farrowing community, to try and educate clients um, better and give them more information about the choices that they have in front of them. You often hear, uh, a good, good example is that you often hear, you know, when I sit and talk about different shoe fitting characteristics, oh, well, it'll, it'll pull the shoes off or it'll end the shoes off. We kind of become obsessed with premature shoe loss and premature injury because our clients are kind of obsessed with that because they think that the standard of a horseshoe relates to the, how long his shoes will stay on. Well, that problem comes from us not educating them and giving the client enough information to make valid choices. You know, I believe that, you know, one of the things I believe is that Horses, even now, are still a beast of burden. Even though that burden is providing pleasure, they get fed to do a job. And part of our raison debt is to ensure that they do that job. But under certain circumstances where we can prevent lamenesses or, or ongoing pathologies, we need to be able to give the client sufficient enough information for them to make a decision. Do you want me, madam, to shoe this to make sure it doesn't lose shoes and it doesn't injure itself? And in that case, I'm gonna reduce the shoeing cycle to four weeks so that it doesn't do any damage to the foot and the limb. Or do you want me to try and prevent this and keep it on a normal shoeing cycle? But we can only do that if we've got the level of communications, therefore the background knowledge and understanding so the client understands exactly what their choices are. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, a fairy can be an effective communicator and, and have that understanding, but there needs to be the client buy-in. Absolutely. Do you think that is something that can be effectively communicated or? Yeah, I do, I, I, I genuinely do. I genuinely do. You know, these clients, they have, they have these things and they feed them and they fork out the money to do this, that, that, and the other um, for a reason. And so they're faced with these decisions, but given the choices, what they can't do then is give you the comeback. You know, when it doesn't go right because you've done it to try and keep, stop the shoe from coming off, it's not your fault because you, madam, decided that that's what you wanted. And I've done that for you. Yeah, and do you think maybe the the knowledge is there, the farriers possess it, in, in in spite of what you've already said about maybe how we elevate the industry, that it's just maybe that basic understanding isn't communicated up front. Uh, but the farrier may already possess it about the ill effects of of uh, going off of a, a more tightened chewing cycle. Yeah, yeah, undoubtedly some do, Jeremy, undoubtedly. And um, but they kind of feel restricted by client expectation because they haven't been able to communicate the problems effectively to them. You know, it, we're faced daily with the, the consequences of 
um, confirmation abnormalities, management problems, and environmental problems. They they are the contributory factors to what we face on a daily basis, youth shape and morphology. Some of those are out of our control, but we can effectively manage the overall situation by manipulating the force, the interacting forces between body weight and ground in a certain way. But in doing that, we can't always effectively shoot them for an eight and 10 week cycle. If we need to prevent that, then we need to be able to reduce that shoeing cycle to a four week cycle. But the client needs to understand that and buy into the fact that they haven't really done twice as much. What would your uh, recommendation be then when we face that reality, yet I think sometimes clients expect the farrier to subsidize their horse ownership in a way, you know, and that now what they view as their, their shoeing cost, shoeing maintenance has in effect doubled by cutting that in half. Yeah, but again, uh, I, mean, I firmly believe that that's down to the way that barriers communicate with their clients, being able to explain the pros and cons of a specific course of action in relationship to the horse's welfare and to balance that against the expected or unexpected amount of veterinary bills that are going to come. Should be, you know, we should be able to balance it against the overall cost. Well, our clients' horses, particularly as they get a little bit older and they're expected to be performing dressage to a certain level or show jumping to a certain level, they're kind of like the 65 Mustang. They need maintaining delicately and balancing more frequently and tuning up more frequently in order to keep them efficient and effective. And we have to be able to explain that to clients in a way that I understand it. Earlier, I played a clip you know, of a very passionate statement that you made at the International Hoof Care Summit. And yeah. I think we've reviewed a lot of that in here. Hopefully still listening to this episode, that skeptic that says, but I can still make a good living. I, you know, I'm doing horseshoeing the same way that I was taught, that my father was taught. For that, that individual specifically, because I do think there's quite a few farriers that I've seen people watch you at the summit, at the convention. I've seen people not even at your lectures, but improving their knowledge, it's there. But for some that, that haven't completely bought in, what do you say to them about about improving that education specifically for them? Yeah, if you want to maintain that into the future, and you want to maintain that for your children or apprentices or workers to progress forward into, you only have to look back and the change in the equine industry over the last 15 years. The level, of, the level of horsemanship with owners, the cost of owning horses, the cost of purchasing horses, and the things that they're demanding of them. They've all increased exponentially over the last 15 years, and there's a greater level of expectation from you, the so-called expert in the room. And eventually, if you don't keep pace with the need to keep those things, to keep those horses sound, 
and in work for the work that they're being fed to do, you'll end up working on a bigger group of lower quality horses. Within that framework, there's a financial consequence. Even in your country, and it's the same in this country, the backyard horse is worth $50 a set, and your competition horse is worth considerably more. So to be able to have the knowledge and the understanding to shoe for better educated clients on better educated horses means you're going to do less for the same amount of money or more, and you're going to have sustainability in your career path. Without that, you're going to be moving from client to client to client and hoping that there's enough clients to go around. Okay. I think that's the answer to that. I think it's sad, you know, when I sit in the, and I look at people that are working really, really hard to try and maintain a living. Uh, and I'm thinking particularly, when, I, when I've been talking to you, I've been thinking particularly about one person that I met on my travels. And this guy is a married man with a family and a couple of kids. And unfortunately, both of his kids have got um, type 2 diabetes. And so he's flogging his guts out to uh, be able to afford health insurance. So as passionate as he is about trying to learn, he's restricted by the need to maintain a daily income. And no matter how I would try to say to him, well, if you can just find a couple of hours a day just to improve your understanding, then that might change a little bit. You might get the same level of income from a little less work. It's, impo it's almost impossible for this guy to make that leap. And part of, that, part of the, my frustration with that situation is, is that I know that this guy spent a lot of money on going to horseshoeing school that didn't teach him those basic essentials. And so it makes it difficult for him to transist into something more professional. But yeah, he has the desire to be professional. And I'm sure that that is taking aside the health insurance thing. I'm sure that that is the case for a lot of people. They want to be more professional. They want to kind of enjoy, enjoy their work more and get more out of their work and have a better understanding. But it's the fear of taking the leap because it's the fear of the unknown consequences. And all I can say is that, certainly from my point of view, that those unintended consequences of taking that leap to try and understand what it is that I'm doing have been nothing but a great adventure and nothing but beneficial to my own self-being and my own feeling of self-worth. And that's really my take-home message. I would like to thank Mark for sharing his insight on his career and life. I'd also like to thank SmartPak for sponsoring this episode. If you have any questions or comments on this episode or any others, feel free to share those at info at AmericanFarriers.com and stay tuned for coming episodes featuring farriers and foot care information. Until then, thank you for listening. Thank you.